0: Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society. And this podcast is definitively part of that effort. Uh, Today, we've got a normal partner meeting, but I think there's a little pizzazz going on. Uh, The group's getting their flow. So you're going to hear more chit-chat than usual. Uh, And I think it's interesting because it's beyond the current events and beyond the business topic. You're going to get more and more lens into how we're thinking about these business topics and making sense of the information. So uh, hopefully you enjoy it. I think it's kind of the, the trajectory we're on, we're on more broadly. Mike, are you still in bed?
1: I woke up 14 minutes ago.
0: Yeah, you sound nasal and p- yeah. puffy. Yeah. What's happening?
1: Well, it's early. I'm out in Jackson, Wyoming still. Um, Doing my best. It's been a dry couple days out here, and that's probably why I'm so nasally. Uh, but snow's coming, and I'm going to extend my trip a couple days to enjoy the. I think they're calling for 45 or 50 inches of snow. Wow!
0: So, what's your what's your go to when it
1: dumps 40 inches? Gosh, that much snow! Just get up early. Like what and happens? Wait, wait in line. You just a lot of hooting and hollering. All right, that's it. I mean, with a storm like this, where it's going to snow for like basically two and a half days straight, doesn't really matter because everywhere is going to be good.
0: So how do you weave venture capital, your job, into mm. skiing is really the right question. Like, how does it fit in? Yeah. Well, I try to
1: ski as much as possible and I try to venture capital as little as possible. Okay. There you go. Uh,
0: <laughs> do entrepreneurs like pitch you on the ski lift? Like, how do you do it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm skiing with a few of our right now. I'm skiing with uh, a few founders, uh, and I'm also just trying to enjoy myself because this is one of my favorite things to do. So it's a combination of of all three, kind of weave it together. But for the most part, I just love being out in the mountain, and I get to grow a ski beard and do other fun things like that. And you know, I can't do that in New York.
0: Right. Well, you can't have a ski beard in New York. That's allowed, but yes, you can't ski yeah. as much.
1: Okay. What do you got this week? Uh, I thought you wanted to talk about the Tesla recall.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the Tesla recall. Yes, that's what I want to talk about. Recall so, air quotes. Yeah. Tesla had a big recall for everyone not paying attention. It's all the hubbub. And I have feelings about it. But you, you can start, Mike.
1: No, why don't you start today? I mean, it sounds like you're very emotional so and passionate about this. Fine.
0: Look, okay. For first disclaimer, uh, we're a Tesla family. We have two cars. We have a three and a Y. And I like the Tesla. I also like all the other EVs coming. I believe it's the future and I'm supportive. I vote with my dollars. But there's this recall happening because the self driving functionality isn't up to par, which is probably true. The The problem is self
1: driving functionality.
0: Yeah. So there's two versions for people who don't have a Tesla. One is the one, the default that comes with the car. You get in the car, you turn it on. It stays in the lane if there are painted lane lines. Mm -hmm. The cameras can see that. So if you're on the highway, it's terrific. And it also spaces you from the car in front of you and has like a max speed little logic. My mom had a Subaru as her last car. It had a version of the same functionality, stay in the lane, space from the car. This is a lot more elegant. So that's like partial driving. But what it doesn't do... It doesn't make left and right churns and it doesn't stop at stop signs and stoplights. So you do have to stay awake at the wheel, right? right? For some money, 15, 20 grand, you can push a button and it downloads an upgrade. And apparently in that version, which I don't have, you can type into your map where you want to go and the car goes there, makes the churn, stops the lights, the whole bit. So that version of the car, apparently of the software is not up to standard yet. And the problem I have is as the resident tech guy for everyone else in my life, outside of people on this call at work, whenever there's like a tech news announcement, every dinner I go to every hangout with non-tech people, it's like, what the hell's going on with that? Like they attack me. Like I'm the representative of the industry. And I want to tell you, uh, it's reasonable to me that Tesla software isn't perfect yet. That's okay. Right. So I think let's take have... a
1: step back here. You're yeah, saying you're
0: okay with the fact
1: that in the innovation cycle, companies will make mistakes.
0: Yeah. And people will then say, hey, uh, it's not, you know, we're never going to have self-driving cars. I'm like, hold on a sec. Fast forward 100 years. We've got a technology that kind of works a little bit now. Right. You don't think... We're going to have self-driving car and they'll be like, okay, in 100 years. And then I'll say, okay, so how about in 10 years, 20 years? Well, probably in 20 years. How about in 10 years? Maybe five years, maybe. And it's just a short-sighted, we're in a cycle of self-driving cars becoming pervasive. We're at the beginning Mark, of it. Can I ask you, when, when do you think the first commercial airline flight was? 40s, 50s. 1914.
1: 1914. But it was...
0: Define commercial like, airline yeah. flight. I mean, that was like La, yeah, the Montauk Express. Sorry, the more I'm looking at it, it's not... Like, that, like a Pan Am or something.
1: It's commercial airline flight. I don't know. We'll get the answer later. But but my point is to say I'm on board with you because 100 years ago, we weren't flying airplanes. If we don't think 100 years from now, to your point, we can go from where the car is self-driving today to being fully self-driving, you're you're crazy. I do think it'll take a little bit longer, perhaps, than people think, and then I guess maybe some of the, the makeup bulls, like yourself, think. Like if you think it's ten years, I think it's probably
0: twenty. Could but, be. And yeah, they got to get the laws it. around it, which is going to be complicated, and there's going to be case law. Like what happens when two cars on autopilot crash? Mm-hmm. Who's responsible? There's a whole lot of social implications of a major shift like this, and that's going to take a long time to iron out. Yeah, I'll but go. One step I'm just further, anti make- the haters who are saying hey this is never Mm -hmm. happening or they're upset that it's not perfect yet neither of those are reasonable ways to think about the tech innovation cycle
1: right well
0: they the people the haters are
1: just hating because i think change is weird for most people and the people who are are like oh well you know for some reason this is taking longer than it should they don't realize like building software is hard and building software like this is like impossible but it's crazy If Elon can land a a rocket that's shot out to space back on a pad on Earth, I think they can figure out how to, like, you know, find a stop sign and make a return.
0: Yeah. And I I think people also aren't seeing, like, the the potential benefit of this. They're just thinking, oh, convenience or safety. And those are both relevant. But imagine a world where every car is self-driving. Every car. Not half the cars, not 10% of the cars. Every car. And they're talking to each other. The cars, accidents are over. What happened? Yeah, accidents are over. So well, I'll
1: I'll go as far as to say I'll make a prediction of the podcast right now. We we might have to have do it. produce producer it. It's on the record, hold it for twenty years. But I think that within, <laughs> let's say within your kids' kids or my kids' kids' life I don't have any kids, but you know hypothetical kids, uh,
0: driving will be illegal. Wow illegal driving that's like saying you can't drive a, a manual transmission car right like that's the old tech that we now have back then fun fun way to think about this when manual cars were normal 70s 80s we would say hey did you buy an automatic car right and now the automatic car is just a car and the old car is a manual car and now you're buying an electric car and eventually, we're going to stop calling those electric cars. We're going to say, "Hey, you're driving a gas car because that's the old car." Yeah, a combustion engine. I don't know. What, they're not going to use that. They're going to say gas car. Well, this is this is
1: actually a better. This is a good segue, I think. And then it's going to be the you know self driving car. Oh, you're driving. Or a, you're actually driving.
0: There's a wheel. Yeah, right. Or you
1: you're going to need a special license like we have today to drive. But it's not going to be like everyone gets it when they're 18. It's going to be like, oh, you are. A person who needs to have a license to operate the motor vehicle for X, Y, and Z reason. That's where I think it's going to go. But like the vast majority of people will not get driver's licenses. They will not be allowed to drive. They will just sit in a vehicle and be taken where they're going to go. But this is a good segue, actually. I was thinking, I think it's interesting to talk about because I had this conversation again yesterday with someone. And this, what you're you're describing, is the tech innovation cycle. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Like we we talk about this a lot. How like AI was its own thing, and now it's just incorporated into everything we do and now no one really even refers, it's just the business just uses it. We just AI, call it software. Right? We just call it software. And this is software. You know, we've talked about this before. I think that that's the way blockchain is going right now in, in this exact same vein. I think it's the same way that cars will go. This is just what happens. When early tech gets introduced, people view it as its own vertical. And then over time, it slowly segments into just being the thing. And then you're right, you look back as the old thing. And it, loses that, it, loses it loses its label. It loses its label. It's label. <laughs> exactly. You can take that framework and apply it to nearly every single technology innovation curve we've ever had.
0: Wow, Brett, you're back. Great to have you back on.
2: Yeah, great to be back.
0: So you're a dad now. How's Wyatt doing?
2: I'm a dad. Uh, Wyatt's great. Uh, He's a good sleeper. He's not colicky, which is a big one. And yeah, we we couldn't love him anymore. He's, uh, he, he, it's really exciting having him around.
0: My daughter had colic and I think it's the easiest way to lose all of your hair.
2: Yeah,
0: (laughs) That's that's a hard three months.
2: Yeah. I can imagine. I, uh, I had a niece who was, was colic and, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not jealous by any means, but, uh, but he's, yeah, now he's sleeping through the night. So.
0: Right. You got, you've seemed pretty rested. You're functioning. Yeah. I'm functioning. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Um, it's been a while since you've given kind of a state of the blockchain world. Yeah. Um, so instead of just driving into a current event today, would you mind starting off with bringing everyone back up to speed? What's happened, you know, in the last month or two?
2: Yeah. So there's been, uh, a bit more action, uh, price action, uh, at least on the optimistic side. So prices have, have gone up. Um, they're, is a positive sentiment shift towards crypto, even in the face of uh, potentially some some negative regulatory energy. Uh, one of which being, uh, Kraken was told to shut down their their staking service, um, and that's been a big point of contention because it's been several years since staking has been around, and uh, essentially there is no real path forward for large companies that are interested in offering staking to become compliant with uh with the u s government or with the SEC whoever uh ends up regulating that so uh there there's also some issues on the banking side uh with on and off ramps uh we're starting to see banks uh seeing a lot more regulatory scrutiny so um you know silvergate saw about sixty billion dollars worth of of outflows um so it's been it's been a tough uh few months on the regulatory side but nevertheless uh things were beaten down quite a bit in crypto so there is a bit of uh of a pullback here or a, a bounce from that negative energy we we saw a couple months ago but is it isn't
0: regulation kind of headline bigger picture a short-term pain but long-term gain right doesn't it bring the ambition of this whole industry, this whole initiative into the mainstream?
2: Yes and no. Uh so yes, it's positive from the perspective that uh it is getting notoriety. So it's clearly an important uh aspect of the industry. And it's also clearly important enough for the SEC to get involved with. Um what's negative about it at this point is there still uh hasn't been any guidance as to how to become compliant. So uh and we heard uh, Hester Pierce A commissioner at the SEC um, dissented on the SEC's uh, decision to shut down Kraken staking service that, um, you know, it's basically regulation by enforcement and there's really no viable path forward for people to offer staking services. Mm. So um, until we start getting some indications of that, uh, companies are still going to be on shaky ground from a compliance perspective.
0: So they're not institutionalizing it they're nuking it through
2: rules uh they're nuking it through uh what is essentially just telling somebody they're doing something wrong uh but without telling anybody how to do it right um I see. so you know the the space for doing right is probably pretty narrow in the SEC's view so anything outside of that, even if it is reasonable, is still wrong. So people are going to still get penalized for that. Um, but it's just a matter of the SEC putting out guidance on what exactly, uh, let's say, reporting or disclosures look like for for staking services. And they just haven't done that. And, and we've also heard complaints that uh, the SEC's proverbial door, uh, which is supposed to be open at all times, isn't exactly Open to uh, people that want to be compliant and offer these services. So um, that's a negative. I'm sure, that's- but it could be a positive from the perspective that people are uh, getting exposure to what exactly is going on.
0: Yeah, who knows what's going on behind the scenes and all the you know motivations and lobbying. I'm sure it's all extraordinarily complex. Yep. Hey, can you um, can you explain staking? Because that's the that's the topic du jour for the regulatory regime. Yeah. What is that?
2: Yeah, so what staking does is it essentially allows uh, people in the network to secure consensus. Uh, So if I stake into Ethereum, I can now validate transactions so I can give my vote for certain blocks or I can propose my own blocks. So if I do that correctly, I get uh, a reward for that. If I do something malicious or I do something incorrect or I don't participate actively, I actually can have part of that stake slashed or removed from my account. So uh, so it is a way to secure the network and make sure that the rules are being followed and malicious behavior is penalized.
0: So just making sure – I always try to take the blockchain jargon and put it in common industry parlance. It's like bonding, right? The contractors have bonding, right? You might put up a bail bond. It's someone saying, hey, we're going to do calculations on the transactions on the system where the money went between A and B. And we're going to essentially insure it with our own money and make a little money if if we do it ethically and right. And if we don't, the money we put up as our bond, our stake, We'll get nabbed. Yeah. We'll get taken by the system. Yeah.
2: That's a great analogy.
0: It's like a, it's a guarantee. Yep.
2: Yep. That's exactly right.
0: Why did, why did the, why is the SEC concerned about this right now? Why is this the topic?
2: Yeah. So people that offer staking services, essentially uh, what a number of them do is uh, they'll, I give my money to some company, and they end up staking it via their quote, nodes. And those nodes are the ones that run the software uh, communicating uh, Ethereum. And so the question is, is whether that offering is a security. So if companies are, all they're doing is they are staking your tokens in their software and getting the rewards back and just passing that along to the end consumer, that isn't a security. But where it starts to get dicey is when, uh, when firms start offering attractive returns. Um, There's certain tweaks to software and certain networks that you can tap into that can offer, that can generate better returns for stakers. So if you're out there marketing uh, staking service and you're saying, I can earn you a better yield than you know simply staking with somebody else, well, then that could constitute a securities offering. Um, or if you're doing something along the lines of instead of purely taking rewards and passing them along uh, back to the staker or the consumer, you can smooth out those payments over time. Um, that also potentially could be considered uh, a security. Um, so it. It very well may be, and I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of of how Kraken did it. That it could be classified as a security. Um, but again, the point is that it's regulation by enforcement. And even if if Kraken wants to play by the rules and do everything by the book, uh, there is no book to to follow along to. Uh, so, so they're just basically. Trying to, to figure it out, and you know, getting slaps on the wrist, or even more obviously, shutting down the staking service um, until they can narrow down exactly what the SEC wants, and that's just not productive.
0: But to to red team for a second here, why would the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, be? Uh, that's right. What's the E? Equity. Uh, exchange. exchange. I don't know. Yeah, exchange. Right there, I had it right. Um, why would the SEC be worried? about this potentially being a security? Who are they trying to protect? What What is the assuming positive intent, best motivation for why they might be regulating the staking function?
2: Yeah. Uh, so mostly it comes down to protecting consumers. Uh, so they know exactly what's going on under the hood. Um, so that there's no information asymmetry between what some staking provider is actually doing and what, you think they're doing so that's one thing uh and also the the integrity of the markets uh is always important for the sec to make sure uh that capital is flowing efficiently and that it's actually going places where uh it says it's going so uh but ultimately i would say it's mostly at this point consumer facing because one of the other things too is with some of these staking services, there is uh, it potentially is not clear to consumers that uh, in the event of bankruptcy, uh, their tokens can be used to cover <clears throat> to cover creditors. So uh, usually they're pretty good about reporting that. But uh, that's one of the points that uh Gensler in his in his video had made uh I don't know if you saw it but it's uh quite the production. It talks about stake S T E A K relative to staking. Uh it's quite the waste of time. But um but that's <laughs> but that's part of it, which was um uh, making sure consumers know exactly where their money's going, what are the contingencies and what exactly uh that looks like across all different scenarios. So um So, again, regulation by enforcement is at least, I mean, it's been several years now, uh, is is pretty
0: So you're not opposed to the the SEC coming in and regulating this. You just want them to say, hey, here's how you can do it versus just you can't. That's the issue. issue.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, it very well may be that Kraken's uh, offering could be classified as a security. I don't know enough about the specifics of it. I'm not accusing them of that. Um, Yeah. uh, But. Yes. It's it's not that we don't right, want regulation. It's, and it's actually the opposite uh, for the Coinbases and Krakens of the world. They want regulation, but they want it to be clear and communicated because they do have the resources to comply. So uh, it's, it's not that they don't want regulation. It's a matter of, okay, we want to offer this. What's the best way we can comply right. with you guys? And they're not offering that.
0: Any indication? Last question. That the SEC is trending towards providing guidance about how to be compliant.
2: Um, not that I've seen. Not that I've seen. And also, you know, uh, in terms of being on the front lines, you can only listen to the big companies like Coinbase's Brian Armstrong about what's actually going on behind the scenes. And uh, you know, those are the biggest companies in our industry. And even they're complaining that uh, you know the SEC's door isn't open. For, for conversations in, into how to best do this. So um, so at this point, there's not a, a, a lot of indications that they're going to be putting forth uh, some sort of guidance anytime soon. But I will say the, the, the bright light uh, in all of this is Hester Pierce uh, and her descent. Okay,
0: more to come. Thank yeah. you, Brett. Thanks, Mark. All right, Fong Ireland. We're catching you right before you leave for Buenos Aires and Uruguay if I remember correctly.
3: Yes, I'm super excited.
0: Good, do you guys, do you think you'll be able to bring the family back? I know you were worried about traveling with the kids down there.
3: Um, I hope so, 10 hour flight <laughs> with two kids and this is the first uh, first international flight for all of us um, after COVID. So yeah, it'll, I mean, lots to look forward to, lots to be of. It'll be cake. Of. <laughs>
0: no, it'll be cake. It'll be cake, it's great down there. Okay. Um, so I think you're out next week, but so let's, uh, let's double down on some great wisdom. Let's go around.
3: Yeah. So I, um, today we're going to talk about customer support, which I think is a really, really hefty topic. Um, you know, it's, it's super important. Um, and I want to talk about how startups can think about building an effective strategy that can really drive their business. Now we've all had good and bad experiences. And as customers, we remember how it makes us feel towards a brand, right? And that's exactly why customer support is so important. It drives brand loyalty and customer retention. When a customer has a good service experience, there's a good chance they'll come back, which will be very valuable to your company. Um, I think there are studies that show that a 5% increase in retention can drive a 25% increase in profit. Good customer support also drives customer acquisition. So happy customers will share their experiences with six or more people. That makes it a really significant, cheap customer acquisition channel. Okay, so now that we know why it's important, let's talk about how to think about creating the strategy. First, you've got to define your goals. What does amazing customer support mean for your business? It could mean different things for different companies. So for a retail company, it might mean a flexible return policy and fast shipping. For a software company, it might mean great technical support and a constant flow of upgrades. To further think about how you define your customer service goals, ask yourself, what kind of experience do you want your customers to have? And then also ask yourself, what kind of experience is your competition offering? So people will often pay more for good customer support. So if your competition is offering a better experience, you're kind of in trouble. Tip number two, know your target customer and view your customer service as an extension of your brand's conversation with that customer. So in terms of your customer, you should probably know this for different aspects of your, of your business anyway, but understand their different graphics, their cycle graphics. What do they value? How do they like to communicate? Is it through email, Instagram, live chat, text, phone? Show up in those places. Or maybe they don't like to communicate at all. A lot of customers don't want to speak to anyone and they want self-service options, so offer those. And then once you figure out where you'll talk to your customers, then figure out how you'll talk to them. Remember, your customer support is a big part of how your customer experiences your brand. So make sure it's representative of your brand storytelling. So this is kind of an extreme example and not a strategy I'd recommend now, but I once worked for a fashion brand that was rooted in British style. So when you called customer service, the automated voice spoke in a British accent, even though the company was headquartered in Columbus, Ohio, and we had That's no awesome. distribution outside of the U.S., right? Isn't it funny? Love that. Love that. I'm pretty sure that voice was the only British employee we ever had, but you know what? <laughs> it strengthened the brand's storytelling and customers loved it. Tip number three um, identify the right metrics, keep track of them, and see how they change over time. So some metrics to consider are customer satisfaction. You can uh, use surveys to measure this. It's really a great way to see how customers are happy with the level of support that they're receiving. You can also track your NPS score, which is your net promoter score. Um, it gives you an idea of how likely your customers are to recommend your business to others. You should also track the volume of support requests you're receiving over time. So this will give you an idea of whether you need to scale up or scale down your support team, depending on how much they're handling. Lastly, make sure you're using your customer support feedback to improve your product. So as you're talking to your customers, you're gathering a ton of data. Collect the feedback in a systematic way, analyze it, and look for common themes. Maybe there's a bug or a feature that's not working as expected, or maybe there are suggestions on how you can improve your offering. You might need to make changes to the product or provide more education or adjust your communication strategies. But once you've made the changes, check in with the support team and make sure you're hearing fewer issues about those topics. And don't be afraid to go back to the customers who gave you that feedback and let let them know you value their input and you made changes because of it. Customer support is a great way to show your, your customers that you're listening and that you care about their experience can also lead to really meaningful changes that can make a big pa- big impact on your business. That's what this. I've got this today.
0: A, this is a great one. I actually, just an addendum, I think NPS 101 could be an entire segment for you, just planting that seed. Here's a conversational topic on this. Is the customer always right? And uh, I'm going to throw this one out because this one's a conundrum. And I think people who are... Entering into building their first customer service success function, there's a lot of these cliches bouncing around in the market. I'm going to say something a little controversial, not that exciting. But um, at Interplay, actually, we have unabashedly determined that we are a team first organization, not a customer first organization. And that doesn't mean our team is always right, but it does mean We have our teams back and we're going to support them. And if they make mistakes, that might include having them, you know, apologizing with them or whatever else. But we, I have found, I have a belief that if you have a strong supported culture at your core, you can provide better experiences for people externally. It's just like that old concept, like you can't love other people until you love yourself. I think that kind of applies in a team and management context as well. So. Over to you. Just with a complicated, unanswerable question: Is the customer always right?
3: You know, I kind of wonder if that's like the right question, or it's kind of like an outdated question, right? Is it is it really Love about it. the customer being right, or is it really about the customer feeling like they've been heard, that you know the company understands their concerns and cares about them as a customer, and is doing what they can to address them? Is it, you know, I think that that's probably more important than than feeling right. Um, you know, and I think all of those things making your customer feel that way is really important for um, a good customer service strategy.
0: My first consulting job out of college uh, went into a major brand that everyone knows, and I worked on something called proactive Complaints. It was a customer success function. And the idea was that if you asked customers for feedback, you called them out of the blue and said, "Hey, What do we suck at? And you fix it, they become extremely loyal. If you don't fix it, they become less loyal. So it's this high risk gambit. But if you actually are going to lean into addressing their concerns, it's a great way to build loyalty. So that was my first foray at just throwing a little dash of salt on on your stew today. Proactive uh, uh, complaints is a concept. All right. Thank you, Fong. Safe trip. Have a great time. It's beautiful where you're going. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward to having you back soon.
3: All right. Thank you. I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks.
0: Chris saying, you're calling in from your baby moon, right? <laughs> this is your last trip before you have your first kid? Technically, yes. Before uh, uh, my, my wife's baby pump gets in the way of everything. <laughs> That's a big deal. Uh, my, I have a friend who lovingly named the period you're about to enter called the Lost Decade.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, Where it's Heard about it 10 before. years, if you have a couple of kids, until uh, your youngest is three or four, when you kind of get your life back and can see people again and all that. It's a wonderful period. It's not entirely lost, so I think it's a bit of a misnomer. But it is a change. It is yeah. a change.
4: I'm a traveler. So that's certainly going to be, a, uh, gonna be a, a lost decade for me. And um not, not looking forward to it, Mark. Thanks for bringing that up. But,
0: yeah, yeah well, we'll you're going to enjoy you're it gonna become a homebody. You're going to be a homebody, just working and taking care of kids. Yep. yep. Where are you right now? Uh, Elton has South Carolina. Uh, Very cool. Um, the Hamptons of the South. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does anyone down there call it that? No, they don't. Probably not. And
4: it is, you know, over 70 degrees and um, beautiful, sunny, and close to the shore and perfect.
0: Okay. Uh, I'd love to hear uh, today about balloons. Sure. Spy balloons (laughs) in particular. What the hell is going on from your perspective? What is up? I'm.
4: I know about this topic as much as probably everyone else uh, who's been following the news, but I think it's pretty clear that it is a spy balloon, not a civ- civilian aircraft, as as claimed by China. Um, but at the same time, you know there there are a bunch of Wall Street Journal articles coming out saying that the U.S. has been doing the same thing in China for the for the past m- multiple years, and China's claimed uh, and and sort of reported the incidents uh, multiple times in the last twelve months. So. Look, it's it's general surveillance. Uh, if you're superpowers and and you know if you're if you're the top two, three, five countries in the world, you do this as a default. You want to know what's going on with your competitors. I mean, to me, this is just uh, your day to day. But the media is making it a, a big deal out of it, and of course, forcing the hands of of the government to to, to do certain things. Um, so now, I, as I read the media in China, you know people are. Have a lot of anger over this because uh, you know, the Chinese government released news that hey, you know, yes, uh, you know, U.S. basically caught us, but we're, 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 we've also identified their aircrafts in the, in the air and their balloons in the air. What do we do? What, what do we do about this? And the, of course, that that incited a lot of anger over the last week. And 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 the, the opinion there is yeah, let's shoot them down. Let's let's escalate. So it's it's a a propaganda on both sides it's it's a lot of uh media hype and not very productive let's say no one wants another cold war that's that's for sure
0: yeah and what, what i don't know and you know ignorance is a little bit of bliss when you just want to hop on a podcast and share an uninformed opinion yeah but why do these balloons even matter don't we have satellites everyone has satellites we we can see a nickel on the ground well, and both countries can see a nickel on the ground in each other's country who cares now maybe yeah. the set maybe the balloons have some magical technology uh, they do something else but it does feel a lot like it's something that's been going on for a long time it's one random layer of the mm. broader intelligence mechanisms which have become standard Yep. That is now being used by the media and the politicians. I know certainly here in the States, it feels like it's a left right issue. Are they being yeah. tough enough? Are they not being tough? And, you know, if if we were all very informed about the broader ecosystem of what the matrix of how these balloons factor in with satellites and everything else, I don't know that anyone would give a shit. Yeah. It might just be I, like, let them fly over, who cares? Right. They 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 know which Honda you're driving. It doesn't matter.
3: It's not, yeah, a safe, I mean, it's not a
0: security risk, or it is. I don't know, but it feels, it does feel like one of those things can end up in history books as a escalation moment and yeah. one that may not historians may conclude had no ties to anything of substance.
4: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, this will be a, a very sad moment in history if this becomes the escalation point that, that leads to the next um, you know, Cold War or World War III that, that uh, you know, over a balloon, I mean, out of all things. And, yeah, I agree. This this should be overlooked. This this should be ignored, let's say, by the public. And 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 we should focus on the bigger and more important things.
0: Right. And it also brings up another question, then. Here's a conspiracy mm-hmm. theorist that I can't remember who I was talking to recently. They're like, the reason the media is focusing on the balloons, why they're focusing on the the, the government's putting these stories out is because there's other shit going on right now. Right? Yeah. And so, yep. who knows? Maybe cover up yeah yeah. who knows or you know shiny object over here um but either way it kind of doesn't matter to me it just feels like again a distraction from practical realities Mm. China has advanced they've worked hard to do it they have a different form of government their values are different now so what how do you how do you function in a world it doesn't mean we have to go to war with them right yeah. um yeah we had um uh people on the podcast you know a long time ago uh so i can't remember who dropped it but someone dropped a stat that 20 of the last 24 times there's been a change in the world power mm. there's been war and i can't forget that phrase it stuck with me yeah. uh and uh you know, I look at this and I'm just thinking: Are we blindly walking into war based on human emotional reactions when there's no practical necessity for it? And I don't know that we are, but it also feels like a lot of stupid things are happening that don't need to happen. A lot of discussions yeah. happening that doesn't need to be discussed. Yeah, I me mean, totally agree.
4: The countries and the fact fact of the matter is the countries are still very much dependent on each other economically, um, and you see that in the data. The moment China opened its borders. You know, import-export just in the U.S. completely shifts and and, and and everything's just going, going back to China. So it, it, there's this economic force that's difficult to be stopped by, you know, geopolitics at the moment. So, you know, you have to, you have to watch out for that.
0: Yeah, and I don't know what's going to happen because there's all these population concerns with, you know, for those who haven't been paying too close attention to this, the conversation for a long time was that China's going to surpass the U.S. economically in the next decade or so. Uh, and they've had an amazing rise of wealth. Um, I can't remember. They've actually been on target. They had like a 30-year per capita income target, and they hit it. And it went from poor to af- to wealthy as a country, basically on plan, which I don't know if most Americans appreciate what they've achieved over the last 30 years. And it's, it's a long-term planning cycle. We just don't have. But the, the – um, you know, you look at where all this goes, uh, you know, I, I, there's, a, there's a population question. This is a part two of this, what I want to say to you is there's a population question. The population's aging and no country in the world has ever had economic stability with a huge percentage of the population in the elderly category. Okay, so maybe you'll, this pattern will get disrupted. Maybe it won't. But even if the China does surpass the U.S., so what? It doesn't mean we have to go to war, right? Uh, we surpassed the UK in the 60s. We became the reserve, cur- 50s maybe, and then we, became, we took over the reserve currency with the US dollar, took it from the pound. Had a huge impact on the British empire and the UK. And, you know, it's not bad to live in England. So I, I just don't know why the obsession on ranking number one, number two, it's just not the priority for me. The priority... Maybe my limited public policy mindset is really thinking about like hey quality of life cre and and bringing everybody else up together i don't want to ha- I don't like the idea that there's an America where people are living incredible lives at the expense of the rest of the world. I believe yep. in you know why can't everyone feast together It's a little bit of an idealistic perspective, but I think it kind of aligns with the journey of the entrepreneur and what we can do for the world so I don't get it. I don't get the whole psychology of the zero sum mindset around this. Yeah, no, totally agree. Totally agree.
4: Uh, should we talk about the markets a little bit?
0: I don't know. I do Anything have a you few want things. To say? I don't okay. know. go ahead.
4: Okay. Um,
0: Sorry, I just went on a rant there. It just kind of <laughs> happened. Whatever.
4: So. Okay, well, a couple of important things happened this week. Um, not a lot of uh, major news, but CPI did come out, PPI, the producer price index did come out. Uh short of it is both surpassed expectation, stronger, higher than expected. Uh especially when you delve in on a on a month-on-month. Um both came out at a 0.5%. That's still a lot of growth versus December. Um and the major component of CPI that contributed to this data to this data point is is housing, which to me is is OK, because housing is a bit more seasonal. And the expectation is as as um, new leases get signed, you will see sort of this number trickling down again. So that's it's OK. What's a bit more concerning, though, is PPI, which is, again, a bit you can sort of think of it as a leading indicator of of CPI for next month also came out stronger. And part of that's you know, probably be driven by retail sales that came out this week too. That's also you know, 3% headline, stronger than than than, than previously. So um, we're not, inflation is not 100% under, under control. Um, but we're, we're definitely, on, as we talked about this many times before, we're on the right trend. Um, what really, after all that, what really moved the market this week is a comment from James Bullard, the head of St. Louis Fed, who basically came out and said um, the Fed shouldn't rule out a 50 base point increase in March, which will be a reversal of what they've been doing in the past past month, which is you know, to slow down the hikes. Uh, but put it in broader context, historically, Bullard has been a, a hawk. So he's historically argued for higher rates. But for a voting member on the FOMC to come out public and publicly say that the possibility of a higher interest rate shouldn't be ignored, mm. didn't help didn't market. Right, so market actually is in the red this week, and S and P down one and a half percent yesterday. Um, so
0: yeah, but does I mean, that matter? I mean, aren't there? Isn't the voting body for the interest rate about eighty something people, a hundred people? No. It's not
4: the rotating members, the small small group of people that are doing this. Um, it, it does matter, but uh, look, it, it's you have to put it in context. You just have to know that who's the, who's on the historically been the the dove, historically been the been the hawk, and what is the change in their tone over time. So this to me is not a surprise. The fact that Buller came out and said said this. Uh, but it does realign. It just kind of it just serves as a reminder to the rest of the market, hey, because the market is now pricing in almost basis, 100% of a 20 basis point, 25 basis point hike in March as opposed to 50. So maybe that probability shouldn't be the case. Maybe it should be 80, 20, 90, 10. Regardless what, it should not be zero. And so that's really what moved the market. Um, but look, I, I we've always, we talked about this many times. Look, market is pricing in 5%. That's not right. That's just not right, that needs to be corrected sooner or later. My view is still that it needs to, the top line should be somewhere around five and a half, 5.75. So we're 50 75 basis, basis point out of sync. And once that gets corrected, and right now we're so on that path to be corrected, then things should be better. So, so this is not a surprise to me, but you know, but it did move market this week. Um. That's basically the main thing that happened this week in the markets. Uh, the, the one last thing I, w- I want to really talk about, um, and I've highlighted this before, is the continued dichotomy between interest rates and equity markets in the U.S. Interest rate market is pricing in more and more of a probability of recession, evidenced by the, re- the, in- the sort of um, uh, uh, the, uh, interest rate, interest rate curve, I'm too intense. The equity market, on the other hand, especially if you look at the options market, the the sort of the cheapness of, or the richness of um, the hedge on the downside has been is is now at a historical low. What that means is, it's if you're someone that has a bullish position in the equity market and you want to hedge your downside by buying a put, it's incredibly cheap for you um so in the option that just means that in the in the, in the in the options market especially the equity option market people are okay people are generally okay to put on more bullish positions and no one's crowding into a bearish position so if you're an investor across asset i mean you need to take advantage of this market that's that's the main thing i want to say is you have to take a stand. You can't just be wishy-washy and be in the middle and, you, and say don't. you don't know what happens because the market is so divided right now. You should take a position. If you think the market's going to go down, great, then that means you're more in line with the interest rates investors. You should take advantage of the equity market, buying a lot of puts and hedge your positions out because it's so cheap, historically cheap. But if you're bullish, you should take advantage of the interest rate markets and maybe put on some trades that that that, that will indicate otherwise. So... This is a very interesting market for investors, process as investors, to to engage and and, and put on a view. Because the, the the risk reward is 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 very attractive right now.
0: But these are all short term trades you're talking about, right? You're talking about this is gonna unravel three, six months, you know, yeah. Fed makes some decisions, maybe there'll be a different dynamic or paradigm coming up.
4: Yep. No, yeah, that's fair to say. It is It this is, is. This is Wall sure. Street
0: trader stuff. This isn't Main Street, yeah. you know, pension fund stuff, you know, 401k stuff you're talking about.
4: Uh, well, it is definitely pension fund stuff. I mean, it's, it's institu- institutional players are doing this right now. Uh, well, it is not. If your investment horizon is 20 years, 10, 15 years, this doesn't really matter to you. But yes, it, it, if you're institutional player, if you're, if you're everyday folks that, that are more sophisticated in the market and want to take advantage of the market currently in the short term, put on a one year, two year long trade, this is interesting.
0: All right. Enjoy your baby yeah. moon. We'll do. Go, go live your last hurrah. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. And just a quick reminder, Chris is an SEC-registered RIA, so nothing he said should be considered investment advice. All right, everybody, we're back in the swing of things here. Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, We'll be back next week with more thoughts and insights on the tech world and innovation. Talk soon.